Savior and our Lord. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy? It's the fifth book of the Bible. We'll be in chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just as a refresher, this is just prior to the death of Moses. It's just prior to the Israelites entering the promised land from the east to the west, crossing the Jordan River. And before they go into the promised land, Moses is renewing the covenant. The covenant that was made 40 years earlier at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He's renewing this covenant because this new generation, some of them never even saw Mount Sinai. Some of them had had no memory of God speaking from the mountain. So he's renewing this covenant. So Deuteronomy actually is a covenant document. It's a Suzerian covenant treaty document. If you look at your cardstock, you'll note that the preamble was verses 1 through 8. The prologue goes all the way from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 4, verse 43. So we are in chapter 4, and we'll proceed all the way to verse, verse 14. We have finished the, the primary part of the prologue, often called by uh, theologians and uh, professors of the Old Testament, the travel log. Moses says, has gone over the traveling history of Israel up to this point and showed them God's faithfulness. And he's about to get into the stipulations of the covenant, which is really just the Ten Commandments. And he's going to extrapolate each one of the commandments all the way from chapter 4 through chapter 26. But right now we're still in the the prologue. And this is the part of the prologue where uh, Moses is basically summarizing his his argument that they should listen to God. They should listen to this covenant. That this covenant was important. And this part of chapter 4 is actually, it's even though it's the end of the prologue, it's like a mini version from chapter 4 verse 1 to chapter 4 verse 43. It's like a mini version of the whole rest of the book. It's a mini covenant document where he's basically telling them exactly where he's going. So coming at the end of the prologue, front and center, there's three things that we'll see. Number one, the eternal majesty of God, the King, whom they owe allegiance. Number two, His wonderful grace to call them to Himself. And number three, which will be the focus tonight, the sufficiency of His Word to guide them. The sufficiency of His Holy Word to guide them. So we'll be reading Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. As you are able, would you please stand and hear the reading of God's holy and inspired word? And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor shall you take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all the statutes will say, 
Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and they may teach their children so. And you came and stood, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Amen. Please be seated. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. This day, speaking of the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of the Word of God, should always inspire us to honor the Word of God in every way that we possibly can. God's Word is our guide. I'm going to tell another story by way of illustration of this point. Um, when I was a young sniveling lieutenant, maybe I was a, a new captain, I was assigned to an army unit. It was an Air Force pilot taken out of his unit and placed into an army unit. It had tanks. It had Humvees. They were always running around in the dirt. And it was a different experience for sure. I was in the 1st Cav, 2nd Brigade at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, the commanding officer was a man named Colonel John French. If you got on his bad side, they would say that you needed to go talk to him because he was going to French fry you. I've been French fried a few times myself. Uh, although I was in the Air Force and he was not in my chain of command, he was my boss. He didn't rate me. He wasn't writing my performance reports, but I served him as an air liaison. And one of the training centers that the Army goes to is called the National Training Center. It's in the desert. It's near Fort Irwin, California. It's a barren wasteland. Um, they go there because no one else is there. They drive their tanks around, and they have all these electronics hooked up to all the vehicles, and they practice shooting each other and killing each other, and it's large, for large force maneuvers through the deserts of California. Well, one of the things that, so the people driving the tanks, they get their training, but everyone up the chain to the highest ranking officers also get training. They get training in a headquarters, a headquarters tent. And what they're told by the commander is his intent for that large force exercise. They pretend like it's real war and they act like it's real war. And the commander's intent guides everything that happens. So the commander's intent on this particular force-on-force -force engagement 
involving hundreds and hundreds of tanks and vehicles, I mean large force, was that the column coming down from the north would be our primary focus of engagement. And that if there were distractions from the east or the west, that these would be uh, held off using holding forces and that all focus would be on the primary force coming from the north because that was where we needed to go. So that was on a, on a Monday. And by Friday, everyone's exhausted. And finally, we've reached that point where we're about to meet the enemy. Nobody's sleeping. These, these majors and these lieutenant colonels, the commander's gone. He's out on his tank having fun. They're all arguing about what they should do and what do we see on the map. We see that there's a large force coming from the north. And these guys, some of them are Gulf War veterans. I mean, I've respected all of them. They were like, we need to go after this, this force to the east and we need to, to do this over there and we need to take all of our air power and attack this force to the east. They're about to flank us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't know anything about anything in the army, but I knew the commander's intent. And I said, Major, Colonel, can I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but can I say something? And they said, sure, what do you have, Captain? I said, the commander's intent, I memorized it. And it was to engage the force coming from the north and to use holding forces for everything else. And it was like a light bulb came on. And everyone all of a sudden was caged and knew exactly what to do. They ignored the commander's intent and they were confused, but when they listened to the commanders, and again, I'm the hero in this story, that's why I like it, but when they listened to the commander's intent, they knew what to, what to do. They knew how to act. And really, this is what Moses is telling the people of Israel. You're going to go into the promised land and there's going to be years of fighting. You're going to have to fight. What do you need? You need God's Word. That's what you need. What do we need as God's people? We need the Gospel. We need God's Word. We're not going out with guns and fighting people who oppose us. We're going out with the Word of God. God's Word is sufficient. That's the title of the sermon, The Sufficient Word. I'm going to make five points. Five short points. We're to hear the Word and do it. We're to trust the Word because it's sufficient. We're to display the Word and shine it. We're to guard the Word and teach it. And we're to regard the Word as holy and honor it. All of these points Moses makes as well. So let's look at verse 1. Hear the Word. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules and decrees that I'm teaching you. Notice he says, and now. So this is a switch from the narrative that he's been talking about up till now. The narrative, we went here and you did this, and we went here and you did this, and God punished you for this, but He blessed you for this. And now, something has changed. And now, based on all that, listen to this and do this. He switched to application. He switched to imperative commands. Look in verse 1 at the commands you see there. Listen, do, go, take. It's like Paul and Romans. You have indicatives all the way up until chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, he starts right into imperatives. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's the same in Ephesians. Chapters 1-3, through three, all indicatives. Chapter 4, verse 1, imperatives. This is the way of Scripture. God is God, so you go do. 
And Moses is saying, based on all that God's done for you, now do this. Now listen. That's what he wants them to do, first of all, is listen. And this is a wonderful Hebrew word that we've talked about before. It's Shema. Shema means hear, but it also means listen. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which was our call to worship, starts in Hebrew with the word Shema. And it's so universally known that it's known as the Shema. Jews who are, who are faithful Jews will pray the Shema every morning and every night. Even today. And have for thousands of years. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. This is our duty as well as Christians. We should be saying this every day, morning and night. This is the same word that's translated here in chapter 4, verse 1. That's translated listen. It's often also translated obey. So it's more than just hearing, isn't it? Because you can hear something. If you have children, you know they can hear something and not listen. They can hear something and not obey. It's even more than just listening, though. It's an act of obedience. Shema is hearing, listening, and obeying. That's Shema. It's, it's the whole package. In English, we don't have a word that quite is that. But that's Shema. And He's calling them to listen. To listen to the statutes and the rules, the decrees that I'm teaching you. Moses in the whole rest of this book, is going to teach them all that they need to know. He's going over all the covenant decrees. All they need to obey. These are things that are all related to their covenant obedience. They're in covenant with God. This is a covenant document. In all the instruction God gives His people, in all ages, they need to hear and listen and obey. The Shema should be our rule of life as well. In light of the Gospel, we strive to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. And Yahweh is one God. He is our God. He's perfectly righteous and just and wise. And all of His holy Word reflects His character. Moses isn't teaching the Israelites that the law was a system of justification. This is not how they they are right with God by obeying the law but rather that shows their love. Love the Lord your God. This has always been the case. God desires our hearts. Flip to Deuteronomy 10. It's never been just about following law. It's always been about the heart. Look at verse 12 with me. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He's not partial and takes no bribe. God has always called us to obey Him in love. Our love is our obedience, and our obedience is our love. It's a package deal. And God calls the people of Israel at this time in this first verse to hear, listen, and obey the Word of God. This is for us as well. Second point, He calls them in verse 2 to trust the Word of God. They're to hear the Word, but also to trust the Word. He says, you shall not add to the Word I command you, or take from it, chapter 4, verse 2, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Don't add from it, don't add to it, or take from it. This is a covenant treaty document, and extra-biblical treaty documents that have been discovered, archaeological discoveries, they have statements exactly like this. What does it mean? If you take from this, if you add to this, it's like breaking the covenant document. It's like breaking the covenant. You're probably going to be killed. You've broken the treaty. This picture is seen in Genesis 15 when God ratifies His covenant with Abraham. You remember He cuts the cow in half and sets pieces on each side and the the other animals are cut in half except for the birds. They're just killed. It's a bloody mess. And they're supposed to, the, the people that are in the treaty together are to walk through this blood. As if saying, if either one of us breaks this covenant, then may we become like these animals. Although Abraham was put into a sleep by God and walked through the covenant blood himself, thankfully. So nothing was to be added. Nothing was to be taken. That's also a way of saying nothing more is required. What God has given us in His law, and this whole book is known as His law, what God has given us in His law is perfectly sufficient. There's nothing else that's needed. The commandments are what we need. The entire Bible is, in a sense, the law of God, the statutes of God as the rest of the Word describes itself in that way. The Scripture is sufficient. Just a a few quick uh, quotes and Scriptures on that point. The sufficiency of Scripture. I want to nail this um, hammer as deep into the wood, or nail this nail as deep into the wood as possible. Dr. Joel Beakey states, the fact that the Bible is the written Word of God supremely authoritative and self-authenticating, clear in its doctrines, necessary for the church's salvation and life, unified in its testimony to Christ, the efficacious work of Christ by the Spirit, the unfailingly true in all that, that it declares and implies, this all implies that the Bible is uniquely sufficient as God's special revelation to us today. It's uniquely sufficient. Nothing more is needed to be added, and we definitely don't take anything away. Our confession in chapter 1, speaking of God's Word, says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in the Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture 
unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. There's nothing else that we add. We don't add any traditions to the Word of God. We don't add any new revelations to the Word of God. We just have the Word of God. Listen to Psalm 19, Psalm of David. The law of the Lord, God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Word is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean and true. And more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This is the message of Moses to the Israelites, and it's the message of David to his court, and it's the message of Scripture to us. We are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward as we hold the Scripture to be sufficient for all that we need. John 20 John says, that verse 31, the things He wrote are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. Everything in this book can be traced in some way back to Jesus. Everything. In some way, I challenge you, find me a part of Scripture and I can find a way that this traces back to Jesus and the redemptive history of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, talking again about the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy, remember how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking about the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if all Scripture is breathed out by God, then we see the perfect attributes of God in the Scriptures as well. It is perfectly sufficient for life. This doesn't mean that just you and your Bible go off into a corner and you don't need any fellowship, you don't need any teaching, you don't need anything. The Scriptures also show us that we do have teachers and preachers and theologians and scholars and confessions and creeds. God uses men and means to bless His own people, yet these are all subordinate to the Scripture. And in so much as they're faithful to the Scripture, they're to be listened to and trusted as speaking the Word of God. But the law of God, the Word of God, is the only rule for life. Moses is telling them that this law, this Word, is all you need when you enter the Promised Land. You should listen to it. Indeed, the Word of God has been sufficient to meet the needs of people in every age. Some of you might be thinking, well, they only had the first five books of the Bible. Was that sufficient? That was sufficient for them. The Word that Adam and Eve had was sufficient for them. They had all the Word of God they needed. This is the progressive revelation of God. 
And we are so privileged that we have the entire completed canon of Scripture. We have the Word of God. And we know that it speaks of Christ. So blessed are we to live in this age. But there is no adding to God's Word. There's no special prophecy. There's no special prophets. Those things have ceased. There's no more thus saith the Lord moments that occur today. If there were, we need to pull out our pens and start writing them down. And put another book at the end of Revelation. Fill them up with all the, the, the new things that God is saying. But that's not the case. Even in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we see the same warning God giving His people that Moses gave to the people here. Revelation 22.18 I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes the words away from the scroll of this prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Talking specifically about the book of the Revelation, but of course it applies to the whole Bible. We don't change it. It's sufficient. Why? Why would we, and why would God say that at the very end of the Scriptures? Revelation, the very last book. I think it's obvious. We need nothing else. We need no miracles. We need no trips to heaven. There's nothing else that we need besides the Word of God. And the Spirit of God makes the Word of God come alive to us. Jesus describes this human failure to value God's Word in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that we read in Luke 16. The rich man died. He was in hell and he wanted to warn his brothers. And Abraham said, you have Moses and the prophets. You have the Word of God. This is what you need. And he said, no, no, no. Send, send Lazarus back. If someone goes back from the dead, then they'll believe. He's saying God's Word's not sufficient. It's not enough. And that, that still is the prevailing attitude in many churches today. We need miracles. We need something amazing. One of the most popular uh, Christian writers in the last century was named Sarah Young. She became famous because she wrote books in first person, like Jesus is talking directly to you. And she said that she would write the books as God's Spirit directed her pen. That's heretical. But people loved it because they didn't find this book to be relevant, but Sarah Young's books, Jesus Calling, it's very relevant. It's first person. It's directed right at you. The problem is it's heretical. God's Word is sufficient. Today I'm probably going to step on more toes. There's a, a very popular show on television called The Chosen. This is an actor portraying Jesus. This is a human man, a sinful man, portraying the holy, perfect God. And he's grossly diminished. He's a sinful picture of the Almighty God that he's attempting to represent. And people like it though because he's supposed to show us more. He's supposed to give us more context about how Jesus might have been. Or I don't, I don't believe that's how he really was, but... 
You see, it's, it's hard to really understand how Jesus is in the Word, but when I watch this show, well, then the Bible comes alive. Well, there's a problem there. It's idolatry. God is not to be represented in any way by anything, and especially by another man. And the only helpful context you need to the Scriptures is found right here in the church. Through the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. Through your own personal study of God's Word. And the Holy Spirit living within you. His Word is perfectly sufficient. But the problem is our depraved minds always want something more. We always want a little bit more. Something more than God's Word to help us out. Nothing needs to be added to the Word of God. It is powerful and active by the Holy Spirit's power. In Hebrews 4, Paul says the same, for the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So Moses telling the people about to enter the promised land, the same thing I'm telling you, the Word of God is all you need. You should do it, trust it, live it, love it. You say, well, it's so hard to understand. Well, keep reading. Keep reading. The more you read it, the easier it gets. I remember teaching my children. I had the, the wonderful privilege of teaching all five of my kids to ride a bike. It's it's such a life lesson to watch a child learn to ride a bike. Because this is how we learn spiritual lessons too. You get them going, you're standing right beside them, you let go, they pedal a little bit, and then they fall over. They cry, they skin their knee, you're like, okay, come on, let's fix that up. And then you get them going again, and you run next to them, and you're watching them. Keep pedaling, keep pedaling. You know, that's the key. Keep pedaling. As soon as you stop pedaling, you're going to fall. And they fall again. And eventually they learn to trust you and they learn to keep pedaling and eventually they're riding their bikes. We need to trust the Word of God. We need to trust the Word of God and keep pedaling. And if you have trouble pedaling in the Scriptures, keep pedaling. Keep pedaling. So we hear the Word of God and obey it. Moses says to trust the Word of God. It's sufficient. Thirdly, he says that we should display the Word of God to the peoples around us. Verse 5, he says, I've taught you the statutes and the rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The obedience of the people would be their surety as they would go into the land and they would obey the statutes outlined in the book of God. And they would take possession of the land. And this would set them apart from the peoples. It says in verse 6, that they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. And they'll say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. This is a pretty amazing truth, and I believe it's ignored today. The people around us may not like us because we're Christian, because we have Christian values, because we hold to the book, we're people of the book. But they can't deny that we love each other, that we have contentment when everyone else is going nuts. They can't deny that the impact of the Word on our own families. And this is practical wisdom. This wisdom that 
people will notice. It's a practical wisdom, not just knowledge. It's a shining out the wisdom of God in our lives and all the nations will see it. How? Because we obey the commands of God. Peter applies this principle to the church in 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. And he uses covenant language. He, he talks to the church as if they are the people of God because they are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in the wilderness. He's, he's pulling from this wilderness metaphor. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep the law. Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep the law. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The nations see our good deeds. They see us loving God and loving each other. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they glorify God. Moses continues, what great nation is there that has a God so near? You see, God is near to us as well. He's near to His people. And He's near whenever we call upon Him. He says that part of our obeying the commandments of God is calling upon God when we need Him. We shouldn't forget that. So we hear the Word of God, we trust it, we display it. Number four, we guard and teach the Word. Verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget these things. Make, no, make them known to your children and your children's children. So look at the beginning of that verse. Only take care, again that's an imperative, and keep your soul diligently. Surprise, that's the word Shema again. That's translated keep. But I thought you said that meant hear and listen and obey. Well, it does. Moses is applying that word to your soul. Hear, listen, and obey your soul diligently. You see what he's trying to say. Guard your soul. Make sure your soul is embracing these things that we're talking about. Make your soul hear and listen and obey and keep diligently this word. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. We're to guard this Word that He's given us. He says in 1, or 2 Timothy 1, follow the pattern of sound doctrine that you've heard. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Philippians 4, verse 6, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, by obeying the Word of God, the law of God, and by praying and calling upon Him when we need Him, the same thing happens to us as happened to the Israelites. The God is near to us. He guards us. So be careful and hear and listen and obey to keep your soul diligently. Of course, you remember Deuteronomy 6. We've just read it. Hear, O Israel. Shema, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Teach them diligently to your children. And in chapter 4, verse 9, it even says your children's children. 
You grandparents with no kids in the house, you think your job's done? It's not done. You're also to teach your children's children. You have work to do. And the children in this congregation are also your children and your grandchildren in Christ. So take care and guard and teach. So hear and trust and display the Word of God and guard the Word of God, but fifthly, regard the Word as holy. That's the last point. How on that day you stood before the Lord at Horeb. Moses is telling these people, many of them probably don't even remember this day at Mount Sinai. The first generation had all passed away. There are some who are under 20 years old who were there and who would never seen Sinai. Some of them remembered it as children, and he's reminding them that when you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, the Lord said, bring them close. They came and stood near the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and a cloud and gloom. And He spoke to you from the midst of the fire. The fire scorched the mountain as the holy presence of God descended upon it. And what did God do? He spoke His Word. This wasn't the Word of Moses. This was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Literally, the ten words. And they came from God Almighty, from Yahweh Himself, wrapped in darkness and clothed in cloud and in gloom. And you might be saying, wow, if I were there at that mountain, I would look up and I would say, I'm never going to forsake that Word. You have the same Word and you have the same God. The same Holy God who spoke from that mountain, speaks to us. The problem is, the Word of God, coming from the holy presence of God, is something that profane men cannot understand. We cannot, we cannot understand a holy God, as Dr. Sproul says, but we can understand sinful man, wicked men like us. But God spoke from His holiness, from His presence, His very words, the moral law, to show the people of God how they must live to please Him and to shine brightly to the nations. We must keep our sight on the Word of God. When we teach uh, young uh, fighter pilots how to fight in a visual arena where you're looking at the other airplane, and if you watch videos on YouTube or whatever of, of dogfights, you'll see some guy is usually in front and some guy's behind. And the guy behind, what's he doing? He's not staring out the front. He's always looking over his shoulder because he's got to keep sight of the guy trying to kill him. So what we'd always say is if you lose sight, you're going to lose the fight. Lose sight, lose the fight, and you're going to die. You do everything possible to keep your eyes on the bandit. The same principle applies here. Moses is saying, if you lose sight of this, you're going to lose the fight. It applies in your life as well. If you lose sight of God's Word, you're going to lose the fight. That's why it says in verse 9, lest you forget these things, and lest they depart from your heart, and then what's going to happen? Well, verse 3, he explains what happens. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. That's the, the Scripture we talked about this morning. For the Lord your God will destroy among you the men who followed the Baal of Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord are still alive today. When life happens to you, keep your eyes on the Word of God. Seek wise counsel from the Word of God. 
Pray the Word of God. Trust the Word of God. Hold fast to the Word of God. Moses told them to hear the Word of God and do it. To trust the Word of God because it's sufficient. To display the Word of God to all the peoples and shine it out. To guard and teach the Word and to regard the Word as holy and to honor it. And if we do this, we know that God will be with us and encourage us even in the most difficult struggles in our own lives. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that You've given us Your Holy Word. We thank You that it is the most precious of all the gifts except for Your Savior and Your Spirit. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would enliven and inspire and fire the Word of God on our own hearts. That if there are those who are not reading the Word every day, if there are those who who rarely think about Your Word, that You would turn their hearts back to You once again. That they would devour the bread of life. That they would scoop up the manna as much as they can eat. And every day they would, would consume Your Word. For in it contains life. It is precious beyond belief. It is where we see Jesus. It is where we learn to know God. And when life is difficult in our lives, Lord, when things are difficult, may we not turn anywhere else but to Your Word. May we not try to add things, helpful things, to get us through a a difficult situation. May we turn to Your Word, Lord. May we see it as sufficient. For it is. It is Your Holy Word and we love it. We thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing number 271. Would you please stand with me? Number 271.